Hello, friends. What the fuck's up? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. From big wave surfers, to oceanographers, to filmmakers, to psychedelic explorers, to environmental thought leaders, and everyone in between. And this episode is with Zane Schweizer. Zane is the three-time Master of the Ocean winner and two-time Ultimate Waterman winner. Now, I'll tell you what the Ultimate Waterman competition is. It's a multidisciplinary water sport competition that involves shortboard surfing, longboard surfing, stand-up paddle surfing, a stand-up paddle endurance race, big wave paddle and surfing, Wakaama endurance canoe racing, prone paddleboard racing, underwater strength that means that you have to run underwater with weights. It's tiring just talking about it. And then at the end of all that competition, whoever does the best out of all of those is the ultimate waterman, which seems like a fair way to do it. And Zane is the winner. A big misconception that people have about big wave surfing is that you need to be in incredible shape to surf big waves. A lot of the best guys are in great shape. But it really just takes balls and commitment to paddle in to a big wave. But with a lot of these other endurance water sports, like canoe racing or prone paddleboard racing, if you're not training day in, day out, you're not even going to be able to finish the race. I have mad respect for Zane and what he does in the water. And not only that, but uh, you've, you'll very quickly get the sense that he cares a lot more um, about the world um, and making a positive impact on it than he does about winning races. Uh, in the last couple of years, Zane and his family founded the organization Stand Up for a Cure, which is a stand-up paddleboard event that has raised over $650,000 for uninsured cancer patients in the past five years alone. And in this conversation, we go deep. I really enjoyed it. It's a good podcast. Zane talked about everything from a, a recent trip he took them to the Maldives, where he danced under the stars with Victoria's Secret models, to early trips he took, and everything in between. I like the guy. And I was happy to have him on the show. Hey, if you like this podcast, head over to my website, kyle.surf. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. And donate through Patreon. I would really appreciate it. I have set it up where everyone who donates to this show is automatically entered into a monthly giveaway where I give away gear from my sponsors, Patagonia, Sector 9 Skateboards, RPM Fitness. Um, so every month I'm giving away three different giveaway packages. So get on over there because a bunch of people are winning and they're just donating one and five bucks, one dollars and five dollars. Uh, and I totally understand if you can't. Um, I appreciate you listening. And if you want to just share the podcast with a friend, give it a rating on iTunes. That doesn't cost you any money and it does help me out. All right. Without further preamble, please, 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 gosh, I'm struggling today. Without further preamble, please welcome Zane Schweizer. 
Kyle Thurman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. You come from uh, quite a lineage of water people. Yeah, I'm really, I guess, uh, in a pretty cool position growing up on Maui, of all places, and just being surrounded by some really amazing talented watermen and yeah water people right well it's so windy there mm-hmm. you can't always surf so you have to have that secondary or even third sport so that you can be in the water all the time if you are that excited about it your grandparents started not started windsurfing they invented windsurfing yeah is that a fable or is that true <laughs> it's true my it's grandfather um actually super cool story my grandfather went to school in malibu and his classmates were Hobie Alter, Tom Moray, Grubby Clark, and Jim Drake. And if you know anything about history of water sports, those names might ring a bell. Um, you know, my dad, my grandfather would every day after school. And when was this in the sixties? This was in the sixties. He invented the sport in the late sixties, early seventies. But he's he's been a surfer his whole life and a sailor, and um, just totally into activity. And so he grew up in Malibu. Yep. Nice. Actually, I've three generations in California before Hawaii. Okay. My my dad, my grandfather, and my great-grandparents grew up in California before there was any cement even laid in California, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to think about. It's crazy to think about how quickly California developed. Yeah. When you think about uh, 80 years ago, Yeah. it was agriculture. It's crazy. People came out west to farm down in LA, mm-hmm. Orange County, right? Yep. And then um, Hollywood became Hollywood because the weather was so consistent that they could get a lot of shoot days in a row because it was always sunny down there. Mm-hmm. And that is what birthed the entertainment industry, which Silicon is Silicon Valley, baby. Silicon Valley, and now it's Silicon Beach. <laughs> Silicon Beach. I was yeah, just down. Okay. I was just down in. Uh, I was a lot just, of silicone on the beach. There is <laughs> definitely not on Venice Beach. <laughs> Um, I was just down in Venice and there were Snapchat protests. Have you heard about this? No. So Snapchat uh, just went public. So you have a lot of young people who just made a ton of money and they're moving into Venice and that's where they're setting up a lot of their new offices. So they're buying out the local mom and pop uh, stores. There was a, a really well-known uh, burrito Mexican spot that Snapchat just bought up to put their new offices in. Really? And it's driving the rent up, and people are fucking pissed. Oh no! I was down there, and they were uh, they were protesting protesting Snapchat. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But, um, but your grandparents were there way before then. So yeah. So they were in Malibu, and how do you know the story of how totally. windsurfing? Yeah. So. Happened? 
Pretty much. I mean, you could just imagine how it happened. I mean, uh, if you could imagine a group of, of friends at the beach and all of them coming from, uh, you know, a certain background. And my grandfather was came from a background of ocean sport, including surfing and body surfing and sailing. And Grubby Clark and Hobie Alter and Tom Moray, they were all surfers as well. And... Um, so if you could imagine if you're sitting at the beach and the wind comes up, waves get a bit crappy and, you know, my grandfather was there like, huh, why not put a sail on top of the surfboard and we could all still be having a good time. And then Hobie Alter was like, ah, oh, why don't we just make a small little catamaran that we could all go on at once and surf waves, you know, and it's when it's crummy and, and windy. And then Tom Moray was like, oh, what about our our mom and dad and our brother and sisters and all of our friends who are kooky who don't know how to surf? And he invented the boogie board where anyone could just lay on top of this thing and, and ride a wave and get that sensation. And so it was really almost a group of super innovative, creative, oh, passionate 100%. people. Yeah. And I mean, all those people innovated the water sports world. Grubby Clark with Clark Foam, Hobie Alter invented the Hobie Cat, Tom Moray invented the boogie board, my grandfather invented the windsurfer and um it was all sparked from having more fun on the water yeah wow um what a renaissance yeah it's, it's amazing how um that happens throughout history you'll hear of all of these great innovators and leaders who have all been etched in history and they all hung out together Totally. Which makes sense, right? You're mm -hmm. the, the median of the five people you surround yourself with most. So oh, if yeah. all of your friends are inspiring and innovating, I'm sure they're smoking a ton of weed, too. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, he's windy. Let's go get a pillowcase. See if we can ride it. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, Mickey, Mickey Dora and a lot of those old school <laughs> names that a lot of the California sur surfers look up to and, and know about, they were all part of the scene too. But I think that whole crew was more like kind of the more straight. They were all good students. They were smart kids, right. you know, like my grandfather, especially. But, but yeah, they, I'm sure they had a lot of fun for sure. <laughs> Do you know what the, uh, the original um, kite was that they used for um, windsurfing? So it was a sail. A sail, um, yeah. And uh, originally, I believe it was from material called Dacron. And I mean, my, my auntie and uncle and, and dad would tell me classic stories about the hard times that they went through as kids because my grandmother and gra my grandmother is very, just as much influential in, in inventing the sport as my grandfather. My grandfather might have came up with the idea, but you know, my grandparents together made a lot of sacrifices, you know, sold their houses, sold their cars. They really did bring up the sport as a child and not just create something and, and sell the patent and make a bunch of money. You know, they held that, that, uh, this lifestyle close to heart and you know at a young age my auntie and uncle and father would you know be under 10 years old and and helping to bend these teak wood into booms you know bending teak wood and and sewing sails with my grandma and and it was a family thing and you know um they uh shortly you know they they finished their schooling early and as soon as possible it was kind of the, the sport was starting to boom in California. And before they knew it, my grandparents were sending, you know, my auntie, uncle, and my dad to different parts of the world at, at the same time with a container of gear. And each of them would host clinics and, and just share the, the joy of this new sport 
you know, walking on water and, and having fun. And, you know, and at one point during that time in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, it became the fastest growing water sport in the world. I mean, you that, talk- was, the, that was the neon phase, huh? Yeah. When everything became super neon. Whew, that was even before, actually, this was before that neon <laughs> phase, like where in Europe, they said like, you talk to any OG surfer or windsurfer that's European and you ask them, well, what about windsurfing? You know, I guarantee you they'd say that every other car on the Autobahn had a windsurf gear on top of it. Whoa. It doesn't matter whether they were actually doing it or whether they thought that it was the in thing to do. They might have never even taken the gear off the top of their car. It was just the cool thing to do and be a part of it at the time. You could be a surfer and just be hanging out in your local lake behind your house, you know, with your windsurf gear, walking on water. And... Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a really cool thing, and and yeah, that's that is super cool. And so your parents grew up um, around the expansion stage of it, totally mm-hmm. er, early on. And so your grandparents were in it for their whole lives. That was one of their main career, I'm guessing. Was well, my grandfather was, was actually a scientist okay. and uh, an amazing, um, I guess, before the windsurf thing, he was doing building some of the first computers. Like he was showing me Whoa. all these photos of like one computer taking up your entire studio right here. You know, all these huge machines. And so he was a really smart guy. And, um, uh, but I think what overpowered um, all that was the passion for the ocean and passion for being able to instill joy upon someone and, and therefore pass on that responsibility. To, to be able to take care of, of what to us is our playground, right? Yep. And so I think that's one of the coolest things that I've seen personally on my travels is I'm following the footsteps of my grandfather and my father and my mother and my auntie and uncle. And it's, it's crazy because everywhere I go with windsurf, surf, stand-up paddle, or any of these, these sports that I'm competing in, I'm always coming across friends of my family. And I'm, I'm coming across not just friends of my family, but maybe maybe fans or or people who I mean, I can't tell you how many times I come across a random person and they'll hear my name be announced at the event site. And then were you were you Matt Schweitzer's son or are you Shawnee's son or are you the family with Hoyle Diane Schweitzer? And I can't tell you how much your family has changed my life. I don't know where I'd be without the ocean in my life. Or without, without having that that sense of I guess escape, a freedom, you know. And and it, if anyone's ever tried sailing or windsurfing, it's a very different mindset than surfing. There's no taking involved. Right. There's no there's no selfish um, selfishness involved unless you're wave sailing, of course. Then you're still taking waves, but it's more so just freedom. Yeah. You're on the water, and you could go anywhere you want. You're powered by nothing but the wind, and you don't have the supply and the uh, the supply and demand issue that you totally. have with surfing. So you're you are out there alone, the wind in your face, yeah, on your back, oh, the wind on wind the on your back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not a windsurfer. <laughs> Why is it not moving forward? You know what? We I think we got to get you out to Maui and come join my surf camp, and we'll get you sailing. Baby. I'm in. We'll I'm get in. You walking on water. I love it. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and it is this really cool point of entry into a larger conversation. You're an environmentalist, and I'm guessing the reason for that is because you've spent your entire life 
in the ocean and people love to hate on oh we don't want we don't need any more surfers in the world and i get it i hate crowded <laughs> days of surfing yeah. but what it does do is it clicks this thing in people's minds mm-hmm. where all of a sudden they start to value the ocean in a way where they didn't before 100 percent. it doesn't matter if you're on a boogie board or a stand-up paddle board or a surfboard or you're just swimming out in the ocean that click still happens mm-hmm. when you begin to spend more and more time in the ocean i truly believe that if any everyone in the world can just jump in the water, learn how to scuba, learn how to snorkel, learn how to surf, whatever it is, you know, if they they find that click you're talking about, this world would be a way better place because it really does connect people to nature. 100%. And it puts you into this um, this world where you're so small, mm-hmm. right? And our happiness a lot of times is in a direct relationship to our surroundings, right? We can be happy, but then if the person next to us is a little bit more rich or a little bit more famous or has a little hotter girlfriend, then it's difficult for us to be happy, right? Because we're in relationship to something. And as soon as we enter into the ocean, which is so much bigger, right? Mm -hmm. It's so much bigger than anything else we're ever a part of. Um, It does something to our relationship with our sense of identity with ourselves. Oh, yeah. Right. Because we feel so small and we realize that the ocean will swallow us whole and not even look back. And it starts to force us to think about what really matters and how short of a time we have on planet Earth and what we really want to do with our time. Totally. At least on the best days. Mm -hmm. On the worst days, you're like, fuck, I want to get another wave. I'm cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's pretty it's a pretty interesting lifestyle we get to live, you know, being able to chase waves and and uh, I guess share with people, you know, you you especially, you know, having having this podcast, being able to take on people, experts in whatever demographic they're in and be able to share a little bit of their background and hopefully inspire people to. I guess, um, you know, to how they could follow their, that footsteps and yeah. maybe achieve that sense of, of uh, I guess, freedom or right. or success, whatever it may be. And I, I'm super honored to be a part, hanging out with you in your hometown in Santa Cruz and be able to um, experience this beautiful sunny day out here. I'm, yeah, man. It's uh, So tell me about the Maldives. Yep. Because that was a, uh, sounded like a much different trip than your normal trips. Totally. I mean, uh, to be able to go on a trip and not have to worry about competition was amazing. I mean, I don't get to do many trips where it's just um, 100% fun. What were the big moments that stood out to you on the trip? Um, the, the, I mean, single best day of my life, possibly, Whoa. was on this trip. And um, it, it was started off after... A really long night of dancing under the stars with Victoria's Secret models <laughs> and Greg Long and a lot of, uh, you know, Chris Jordan and Surreal Gooch and all these people I just have always looked up to and so, just connecting so, on another level with them. And So a little background. Chris Jordan is a well-known photographer who took the iconic photo of the albatross with plastic in its stomach and is now making a film called Midway, which is about Midway Island, where a lot of the plastic um, ends up in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other guy, who I don't know, give a little background on who he is. Surreal. Surreal. So Surreal is the founder of Parlay for the Ocean. And um, 
I mean, geez, Chris said it perfectly out there on this trip. Is He's like a vortex of, he's like a spinning vortex that just brings these creative, passionate people all together. And he's a, he's a collaborating machine. And he, he comes from the fashion background. And So what is Barley for the Oceans, for people who don't know? Parlay for the Ocean is an organization of ocean warriors and um, people really pushing not just the research and development, you know, making sure the facts that are there are all still current and, and up to date. And if they're not, getting the scientists, getting the people involved to, to update these, these environmental issues we're faced with today and really shed light to the world by using powerful voices in a variety of demographics, uh, you know, community influencers, actors, artists, athletes, scientists, you know, all these, um, I guess, people that you could say have been experts in their, in their world for over a decade. And um, f- for me to be out there with this group of people, um, I was very humbled and, and super just proud you know, to I was the youngest kid on the trip, um, and being able to, you know, coming into the trip, I the, being the able to name, dance on the moonlight <laughs> with Victoria's Secret. Models. No, but listen to this. I mean, coming into the trip, I didn't even know really who was going to be there. I saw a list of names, and I might have recognized a few, but to me, the, my biggest th- thing that I was stoked on was to to really hang out with Greg. You know, Greg Long to me has been my idol in surfing. You know, I've never looked up to Andy Irons or Kelly Slater or, or those guys, you know. I've looked up to people like Mark Healy, Shane Dorian, and Greg Long and people who are genuine human beings that are fighting for something of a greater cause and doing it only to stay grounded, really, and because it's their lifestyle. And and so to, for me, when in the beginning of the trip, I was like, actually, that's I could even rewind it a little more. I actually had to, to make a huge sacrifice to be a part of this Parlay Ocean School um, out in the Maldives because the first event of the World Series, the APP, Association of Professional Paddlers, it's the, the leading world ranking tour for stand-up paddle racing and surfing. And um, I missed the first event, that which was in my backyard in Maui, to be a part of this trip. And I was a little bit torn between the decision whether I need to you know, continue, uh, you know, showing the world that I'm right here and I still can kick ass and be at the top of my stuff. And, but at the same time, I've been manifesting exactly this, you know, taking a new step, a new leap into my career of, you know, every day that I wake up, I think of how I could innovate and inspire. And, and usually it's innovate the sports I'm passionate about and continue to be inspired from the people around me and further inspire the people around me. And, and so now I feel like I'm taking a, a, a leap into this next chapter of life and focusing more so on inspiration. And, you know, I've, I've been able to create uh, quite a bit of results in both the stand-up racing and stand-up surfing and windsurf and the triathlon scene and ocean decathlons and whatnot. And, um, you know, I don't really like to talk about it too much because it's people don't care. People forget about results, you know, and my dad, he's an 18-time world champion. And I've always, you know, going through the poly tunnel, hold my hands on the roof, close my eyes, hold my breath, and wish that one day I could be an expert in the ocean like my dad and all his friends. Wish that I could, you know, be able to be loved by a greater, the greater amount of people around me. And I think what that translated to for me, 
you know, having those wishes as a young kid was not to be loved by everyone, but to love everyone and to really stay clear and focused in my head and in my heart for where I want to be and and who I want to be. And, you know, looking up to Laird Hamilton, Mike Waltz, Brett Lickle, Rush Randall, um, my father, you know, all these huge names in the pioneers of big wave surfing and windsurfing, you know, Robbie Nash, and then the younger generation, my brother is Maddie Schweitzer, and Maddie's my best friend and, and my number one man on my team for my, my career. He's my coach, my filmer, my, you know, he critiques me with, with anything that I need to be humbled on. And his group of friends growing up were all the younger generation of people I looked up to. So I had my dad's generation coming in into the house every day. And I had my brother's generation coming into the house every day with the likes of Clay Marzo, Ian Walsh, Dusty Payne, Granger Larson, um, Hank Gaskell and Mason Ho. And, you know, all these all these, you know, top, top, you know, surfers for the juniors at the time. Now they're, you know, now they're up yeah. there, uh, you know, with the as adults or yeah. whatever you want to call it. So how did you <laughs> feel like this trip to the Maldives helped you manifest becoming the kind of man who you want to become totally so um i made the decision to not be a part of the app world tour um in maui in my backyard the only event mind you in my backyard and i'm really proud to be hawaiian you know hey i'm hawaiian forever and ever and i was bummed to miss this event but I knew that it's exactly what I've been manifesting to, to be a part of a greater cause, to, to learn, to be inspired by an amazing group of people and surround myself with these 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 amazingly talented experts of their of their genre. And I think the, the biggest thing for me getting out there was the enlightenment that, um you know, I have spent my entire life in, uh, in the water, but really hasn't been in the water. The majority of it has been above the water. Yep. And hanging out with these marine biologists and scientists, and we scuba dove a lot. Yeah, we scored great waves, but I mean, I spent a lot of time underwater yep. this trip. And it made me really just slow down and think about, you know, and, and feel comfortable. You know, this whole parlay thing, it wasn't just a party with these amazing people. No, it was... Is this vortex surreal parlay that pulled together these amazing, passionate, creative people? And every day we did six hours at least of class. We would all come together and be presented with these amazing people like Sylvia Earle and Captain Paul Watson and Ian Chris. And Captain Paul Watson is the guy who uh, discovered the Great Pacific garbage patch and brought that to light for the world and probably the coolest ocean defender really you know setting an example yeah. for people to follow you know he's a true is he, ocean pirate he, he does sea shepherd too right yes yeah he's a fucking gangster is what he is. <laughs> totally <bro. laughs> he'll be out in the middle of the pacific ocean and just start ramming this <laughs> illegal fishing boat what <laughs> defend mother nature yeah no he's making a stand you know and we need people uh, like that out there right I, I met that guy once he's awesome <laughs> yeah so i mean it was it 
it was an amazing it was a trip of a lifetime yeah, for yeah. me yeah and not just for the fun not just because the people but because I got to learn right and learn a different aspect and feel humbled because right. I think we all we all a lot of the ocean surfer professionals feel like they know you know what they know right yet they're still scared of the sharks yeah and the dolphins and if they move into the channel the little deeper water away from the reef they might not feel in there's in their comfort zone anymore absolutely and it's like hey no this is our environment if, if you don't feel comfortable with with your environment then maybe you should get down there right. and spend a little more time absolutely <laughs> and to, to contradict what i said a few minutes ago yes becoming a surfer helps you become um, more of a an environmentalist but you aren't seeing what's happening underwater and there's no it's no coincidence that someone like mark healy who's a diver or kimmy werner who's a diver mm. are these voices for the oceans because they're noticing what's happening underwater mm-hmm. and when we're above water we're surfing right and it doesn't to notice an algal bloom on a coral reef takes um, observation, mm-hmm. right? And to notice that there are less herbivorous fish um, in on this coral reef because there's been um, a bleaching happening. It takes observation. Mm-hmm. It takes science. And um, whether you are a company that produces single-use plastics or you are a company that um, sells fish, it's not necessarily... Um, it doesn't behoove you to have a lot of that science out there around how we're fishing all of mm-hmm. the animals out of our ocean, right? Or at least a lot, a lot of these really important fish. So the people who are doing the science, a lot of times it it comes back to good Samaritans. It comes mm-hmm. back to people who are out there and want to let the world know because the funding's not necessarily there for that kind of science. Um, where it is there to, you know, Coca-Cola will pay millions and millions of dollars to find out what kind of advertisement is going to get you to buy their product more, mm-hmm. right? So that so where there is more funding, there's going to be more science. And that was one thing that has really surprised me since I've sat down with a few uh, marine biologists and oceanographers on this podcast is they say, look, we just don't know how many fish there are anymore. Totally. And, and one of the big things for us to be doing right now is to be capturing that data, is to be going into these uh, areas, uh, many times developing countries, and asking fishermen, mm-hmm. saying, hey, you used to go out, and how far did you have to go out on your boat to get this size fish? Mm-hmm. Now, how far do you have to go out to get that same size fish, or even a smaller fish? And that's how they're capturing the data. But it's super important, because then... What results from that, hopefully, are marine protected areas and more knowledge of what the ecosystem is like out there in this big blue ocean. Totally. So what were the main um, moments that you remember from that trip? What really stood out to you? Besides dancing with Victoria's <laughs> I'm going to keep hackling you. I'm going to keep everyone, hackling you. Everyone, everyone is, can relate to that one, right? But um, Actually, so. I, I can't. <laughs> what? I've never, I, can, I can relate in my imagination, but <laughs> I'd say that less than one-tenth of one percent of the people listening have danced under the moonlight <laughs> with models. Anyway, continue. Continuing. Besides that, what did you uh, learn on the trip? So, um... Yeah, um, I learned that there's a lot of work to be done, and I could be working every day, all day and night, 
and it still is not enough. And I learned the importance of being surrounded by a team of passionate, creative people that have a voice, that are not afraid to share what they are believe in and what are, they're passionate about, and not just share, but infect the people around them with this enlightenment, this, you know, this inspiration. And, you know, it, Captain Paul Lawson shared with us that it only takes seven to eight percent of a community to come together, make a decision and, f and, and live by it for there to be a change, a greater change within that community. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's really important, you know, with, with all the influence that we are surrounded by uh, with as humans, um, we, we don't even know the, you know, it's, it's crazy the amount of subconscious influences around us. Yeah. And um, I think uh, we have to use our voices um, for what's Pono, for what's right. And um, I learned uh, at, at this trip something called the air strategy. And the air strategy, I'm wearing a hat right now from Parlay on the air strategy. And it's, um, it's, it's a little thing that they put together to help people see living this lifestyle, this blue, deep blue life, as you know, sustainable surf and Parlay would call it. And this is a lifestyle that we could all play a role in. And we could all be proud to play a role in. And it, it involves small decisions each day to day, you know, and I think we all can make a little decision that's for the better. Right. And, and even if it's not affecting our life um, so much or we don't think it's making that much of an impact, the decisions we make, every action has a reaction. And whether it's, it's you know, you, here's a perfect example. We rode a tandem bicycle to the coffee shop this morning, and you packed two reusable thermoses. So you don't share that it's with like, my listeners. That was between us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love it. So air, um, <laughs> avoid plastic, intercept plastic pollution, and redesign the source of the problem. And I, for me, I left this trip with a goal. And that goal was to redesign my lifestyle and not just, you know, redesign my, my life and, and make these small decisions, but to make sure that my supporters, my support team, my fans, my family knows that this is the bandwagon I'm on. And if you would like to follow, I'm very appreciative. And if not, then we might have to reconsider our, our partnerships. Right. And so for me, I left this trip with this goal to inspire my sponsors, my supporters to play their part in this deep blue life. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones making money off the ocean. They're the ones making money off all these surfers. It's my responsibility. It's their responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to let to express ourselves, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I made a list of all my supporters. And and I and I and I went through each one of them and I'm like, okay, Starboard stand up paddle surfing, Starboard windsurf, Starboard surf. The leader of production boards in the world. They make more production surfboards than any other board company, whether it's kite surf, windsurf, stand up paddle or kayak. They make more production boards than anyone in the world. They are the, the, they're setting the standard right now for production surf industry. Um, I am completely proud 
to be involved with Starboard, not just because they've believed in me since day one, since the day I, I had told myself at 11 years old that I want to follow the tour. They've believed in me and supported me ever since then, but they've also dropped Sven Rasmussen, the founder. He sees this impact he's done personally to the world, to his playground, his environment, because he's also a passionate waterman. And just the last three years, he's been driven to make a difference, to make a change. And to actually know that my top supporter is, is has a belief that I could relate to makes me that much more proud to represent them. What are they doing? So they teamed up with Sustainable Surf and Parlay. And they dropped um, collaborating with Parlay and Sustainable Surf and, and Starboard. They created a research and development team to find alternative production uh, styles and different materials that they could use. Not just finding better materials that are better for the environment, but also better for performance, better for business. And it's hard to get all three of those things lining up, but they've done it. And now all my boards that I ride on tour are eco boards. All of these boards that they're changing their, their production with, they've affected their carbon footprint, lowering their carbon footprint by 30%. How do they do that? By replacing PVC laminate with pine laminate, by using bioglass instead of normal traditional glass, by using um, a different types of, of production materials, also taking a step further by packaging. They don't include any plastic in their packaging anymore when they send things out. And they tore down their headquarters and redesigned it to be a more eco-innovative headquarters with solar panels, windmills, operating more sustainably. Um, and if you really want to take it a step further, they're not stopping there. They're actually want, their goal is by 2028 or 2024 to be carbon neutral, but also start to rewind the damage they've done. Every single product sold with Starboard, they plant a mangrove tree in Myanmar. They've partnered with a huge land um, management uh, association in Myanmar, and they have a, a bunch of land to plant ma uh, mangrove trees. Every single product from Starboard sold, they plant one mangrove. Wow. The life expectancy of one mangrove tree removes one ton of carbon from our environment. Yeah, mangroves are big. They really I've are. Been learning an a lot amazing about amazing plant. I mean, they're not the. It's all depending on the environment you put them in. Because in Hawaii, they're actually they're not great for our environment. They cut out a lot of the native stuff. But it the root system of these these mangroves is like a cage for these smaller fish to hide in. Yeah, it's an ecosystem and an environment that's being created while also pulling toxins out of the air and as well the ocean and as well the ground where the roots come into. And um, it, they really are an amazing plant. And Starboard has figured out a way to not only change their lifestyle, change their business, but also find a way to rewind the damage they've done. But the coolest part about all this is, yes, this costed money to, to figure out. And this has been a sacrifice for them to commit to. But now they got it dialed and they're not holding it privately. All this knowledge that they've created, they're opening it up to the world. Sven is not saying, I've spent the money to do this. I've done this great thing. And Starboard's the only company yeah. going to be doing it because it's going to be good for business, which could be a very good strategy for, for money. But he's offering it to every industry out there saying, hey, this is what we did. 
here's the numbers, here's the facts, here's the difference. It works. Go for it. Yeah. He's letting people run off from where he left off. And to me, Sven Rasmussen with Starboard is one of my people at the top of my list for people I could aspire to be like, along with a handful of these people that I just yeah. met in, at this Parley Ocean School. That seems like a big shift in business that's happened over the last really few years from Elon Musk open sourcing technology with Tesla um, Patagonia open sourcing their wetsuits, um, the the Ulux wetsuits, and now with the eco boards, um, it's such a different mindset. Where previously in business, it's hold your cards cl- close to your chest, don't share them with anyone. We're gonna have the first to market mm-hmm. profit. Yep. But when it comes to um, products and systems that can really help the planet it's cool to see um people think about it differently totally because there's no business to be done on a dead planet in the words of david brower and you know what on that note another really important lesson i learned before i continue with this uh, this this plan of attack um chris jordan another thing that he instilled upon me this trip was the importance of embracing grief um Everyone knows about balance, right? How the importance of balance in life, the yin and yang, whatever you want to call it. The counter to love is grief. We all feel love. We all want to feel love, but no one wants to feel grief. No one wants to feel sorrow for a dear friend or, or a loss of something close to you. It's important to embrace the feeling of grief. And he instilled this upon me at his global premiere of the Midway film. And um, just being able to talk with him. And if you can embrace grief and see what's being lost, that's going to strike you harder than having a love for something. Because when something's gone, it's it's gone. And you don't you don't realize how much you appreciate until it is. And so if you if we could all learn to embrace this grief for whatever it is, our environment, our our family, our friends, we're going to learn to to hold them closer, to really tell them, I love you, or take care of them when we can. And and that's major, a major philosophy that I think a lot of people can, can adopt and make a better change for their life. Yeah, beyond even um, talking about the ocean, but we do live in the society where we don't like to talk about death. Yeah. Right? We don't like to talk about loss. Mm-hmm. Suck it up, pussy. You know, yeah. don't cry. Don't talk about how you're really feeling. And mm-hmm. as a result, it... Um, it calcifies our ability to really feel anything yes totally 100 percent um and it is it is important right like to have we we live in this culture where it's constant summer months it's constant produce 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 oh you got to post something once a day otherwise you'll be irrelevant Mm -hmm. or oh you got to always be out there with a new blog post or a better something right and and when it's winter, we control our environment to make it summer. Right, and when exactly. it's summer, we control our environment to make it winter. Right, but you look, but you <laughs> look like, at, you, I mean, you look at a lot of people who are the great thought leaders of our time, and they embrace that silence. They mm. embrace that winter or that grief mm. or they're deep meditators. And because of that, it allows them to get to this point 
um, on the other side that most people don't have access mm-hmm. to, right? We're getting super fucking deep right now, but I love it. But I'm in. Yeah, it's um, yeah. It it all comes back to our belief systems, right? Totally. The wars that we fight, the decisions that we make, it all comes back to our view of the world, right? And our view of life culture. and death and culture and i do think that embracing death and understanding that process and not shying away from it allows us to live more fully Mm -hmm. that's the reason why so many people who have near-death experiences end up to go on and do great things with their lives right because they've been to that point and they understand that grief probably the same reason that someone like chris is such an ambassador for the oceans because he's been out to midway island and seen albatross eating plastic and has had has these scenes in his mind that very few people um, have really felt. Mm-hmm. And I, I think on that note too, it's you know having that loss c- close to heart and knowing having it so close to like oh, you really rethink about everything. And I personally have had a, f- a few very close to death experiences, and um, more serious of which I was in Peru at the Junior World Championships when I was seventeen my first world championship title I ever won. And we were celebrating, having some fun, um, doing this hike along the beach, big cliffside. And um, I mean, I don't know what happened. I got a little cocky, thought I was Superman or something and um, ended up slipping off this cliff and um, fell 30 feet down into a beach filled with rocks, landed in a patch of sand, like, barely barely the size of my body and uh my brother was there and a few lifeguards and they took them a few minutes to to wind down the cliff get to the beach and and i was at that time still no pulse no breath and um my brother's there crying over me thinking he lost lost me and um they're doing their you know their cpr and, and whatnot and at one point, the lifeguard said, I don't know what to say. Um, and then my brother, the way my brother describes it, is um, I had a just a shock of life into me where I literally lifted off the ground like, and started snoring. And um, I remember small moments of, of that day, um, the people crying over me, um, my brother particularly. And um, I think that image, his compassion uh, for, for me and his loss stuck, stuck with me. And it made me feel like, um, why am I deserving to have a second chance? Like, why, why do I deserve to be here? Because um, obviously I, I had this, this second chance. And, and so since then, I've, I've really taken it um, as a responsibility of mine to, to not think about the, I guess, the um, immediate goals that we're doing, but more so think of these endeavors as stepping stones for a greater cause. And no matter who you are, no matter what demographic you're from, Everyone has these goals. I hope people have their goals and see it clearly in their heart and in their and in their mind. But um, 
we all have obstacles to overcome. It doesn't matter whether you want to be a world champion or whether you want to be a scientist or whether you're trying to survive through your day-to-day life. We all have obstacles to overcome. And we all have to just know that there's these are stepping stones for a greater cause. Once you achieve that world championship, what are you going to do when you're done? You know, and I, I think a lot of people are not looking far uh, past, you know, this point of accomplishment or success. And um, Emily Penn and Chris Jordan did a, I keep talking about Chris, but he's just awesome. Um, Emily Penn was there doing a presentation with Chris. And if you guys don't know Emily, please check her out. She's uh, an amazing uh, researcher. She, a quick little bio for her. She went to go to college in Australia, didn't have the, uh, maybe she had the money to travel on a 747, but she didn't want to. She decided to hitchhike a ride on a boat. And she actually jumped on a research vessel called the, um, the, Godspeed or something like that. It was this very innovative uh, boat uh, maximizing efficiency and their goal was to circumnavigate the world uh, documenting ocean plastic and other other um, I guess environmental issues faced with on the, that are present in the ocean. So she hitchhiked a ride and mind you one girl six South Africans and Kiwis on this tiny little living space. She thought she was just going to catch a free ride to Australia where she'd continue her schooling as an architect, creative architect. And she didn't go to school on that trip. She felt enlightened. She felt inspired. She saw past her vision of why she's going to school or, or what that accomplishment is going to bring. And she saw that, no, this is the stepping stone important for me to get where I really want to be. And she took a sacrifice, a a leap of faith. And she didn't, she stayed on that boat for three and a half years. Three and a half years. Went from catching a free ride to go to school, to get a degree, to be successful, to a commitment to the ocean finding a love and a responsibility where she could play a, a role and and her story is just oh you got to check it out because i'm going to continue on yeah but no, we'll check it out but um she her and chris and she's she an english girl blonde english yes. girl i know emily she's amazing i met her before something just fell on me she's cool um uh, okay, I got your Buddha. <laughs> your Buddha um, but <laughs> so in the weeks after your near-death experience, what were you thinking about? Take me into your mind. Well, because you've clearly had this ascension after that of winning world titles and being super focused. But how did you get from there? to I think it was a number of things that was a that was more of an experience of like okay death is real that was more of like no you were you were gone and you were placed back here for a reason and and for me that lesson that life lesson learned was I'm here for a greater reason than being a champion um but the other two pivotal moments in my life that really, I think, inspired me and shaped me was another near-death experience. And that was a few years later, maybe when I was 20. Um, I was doing a hike at, um, 
let me rewind this because this was at Twin Falls, but there's there's a reason, more powerful reason behind the story. When I was young, I had a twin that passed away, and um, it was his name was Dane, and um, we were twins, and um, before I was old enough to even know what a brother was or what a twin was or what death was. Um, I started asking my parents where my brother is out of, you know, I'm talking like very child before he could see. Yeah. How old was he, he when he passed He away? died shortly after birth. Oh, wow. And um, they never told my brother or, or my sister or, or me about this. Um, my brother was only five years old at the time, so he didn't remember. Um, he's five years older than me. And when I was first starting to talk, I would ask my, my parents where my brother is. And they'd say, oh, your brother Maddie, he's right here. He's right there in his room. And I'd, I'd say, no, my other brother, my, my other brother. And, and they were baffled uh, because they never shared this with our family or, or let alone the kids. And I had this connection with my brother, my, my twin brother. Um, I still feel this connection as my guardian angel, I, the way I see it. And um, one of my most early memories as a child was um, somewhat of an outer body experience where I'm talking um, to Dane, to my brother, and he's up as this, I'm looking from his perspective down at me. And I remember talking to him, but I'm looking down at me. And um, this was like, geez, probably second grade, you know? And this is the earliest, most vivid memory I have. And the way that I've kind of along along this life kind of... Do you remember what the conversation was? No, it was more so just acknowledgement. Like acknowledging that I'm there and he's there. And it, not, it doesn't really matter what we were talking about. It was more so just that acknowledgement and that presence. And... Um, so anyway, fast forward back to this second death experience, um, near death experience. Um, I was at doing a hike with some friends, another freaking hike. Stay away from cliffs and waterfalls. Wait, this is a different cliff. This is a different cliff. So um, now this is after my Peru incident. Um, we were hiking at a spot called Twin Falls. And um, there's this jump at Twin Falls that all the Maui boys know about. So this maybe 30 foot jump. Um, that has a very small launch area. And 30 feet down, just before the water, there's about a 10, 12 foot slab of rock that you have to clear. Um, and so it's a very sketchy jump because you don't have much area to run and jump. You're pretty much standing on a rock that's up a foot higher, two feet higher. And then there's a small little runway below that rock that you could kind of step down, take one step forward and jump off. And on this step down, I was, I was uh, planning to do a jump that a lot of Hawaiians call suicide, where you jump forward out and you go like you're gonna belly flop and then last minute you, you curl in. And, and I took this step down the rock to go for that second leap um, and I slipped. And I remember coming face first down and seeing this slab mind you, 10, you need 10 feet of clearance and I'm going straight down at it. And 
there is this uh, now. Uh, this is instinct taking over 100% or whatever you want to call it. Um, on the way down, there's this small rock before the slab, about halfway up, that I hit. And on the way down, I remember just seeing it and, and I, I just stiff armed it. I put my hand out in front of me, like if you were to body surf, like if you were to take off on a big body surf wave, I put my hand out in front of me, straightened my arm and just stiff armed the thing and literally planed off this rock with my hand. And it doesn't even make sense how that would have allowed me to clear 12 feet. And I, I literally skimmed the edge of the rock and barely made it into the ocean. I clipped my knee and my ankle on the on that last little ledge, and I barely made it in. And I came up, jumped off this rock, and all my friends are on the ground at the top, holding their head, looking to the ground. They thought they heard a smack, and they thought it was my head, and I was dead. And, and I remember jumping up onto the rock, complete adrenaline, shocked on what just happened. And, and, I, and I looked down at my hand and my hand's just completely broken, just hanging. And if it wasn't for that instinctual reaction for me to put my hand out, maybe the years of body surfing or whatever the hell it is, and, I, and we looked at this rock that I hit a, a few weeks later, and af this was after my friends helped me out of the cliff. A few weeks later, we went back up there and we looked, and there was this rock at the halfway up point, the one I hit. It had this two foot long sliding mark in thick moss. If that moss wouldn't have been there, I wouldn't have been able to slide forward maybe. But even still yet, this rock that was at an angle that had this thick moss on it, and I was able to put my hand out and stiff arm it and maybe propel myself forward a little bit, it still didn't make sense that I was able to, to make it across just from stiff arming this rock on the way down. And, you know, the, I remember having this presence with me when I came out of the water then, um, when I had the injury. And, and the only thing that I could think of, it made me break down and cry right there, really was Dane. And I do believe that he was there to give me an extra push and to maybe even shock life into me in Peru. And um, I really do... Um, believe in in guardian angels and in spirits and in greater presence and um it it really um is kind of chilling every time i think about it you know and, and it makes me rethink everything i do of course because i know that there's people who love me like the like my brother and the friends around me who thought i was gone or like Connor Baxter and Baker Grant, my best friends who thought they watched me smash the rocks right there at Twin Falls. And it makes me realize that, you know, it's, um, my life is not just my life. You know, my life affects the life around me. And um, so there was um, then I think the point at uh, that time, the point that, um, I have to take lightly more through life and and th slow down and be a little bit more present and and not think ahead so much because I think as as 
you know, performance, peak performance specialists or athletes, whatever you want to call them, we're always thinking ahead. We're always training our minds to, to react faster, to, to, to be quicker, to have that instinctual overtake, to, you know, be controlled under this adrenaline and pressure. But then I think it made me think like, okay, this, I need to slow down and I need to really be a little bit more mindful about every, you know, my dad's always told me growing up with every action, there's a reaction. And I think that overplays into so many different things. And um, anyway, so that, that was, those are my near death experiences that made me rethink my life. But then, Damn. then <laughs> I think even more so than those experiences, um, I had, I had a bit of influence before those personal losses. Yeah. And it was the losses from people around me. And, um, one of the bigger pivotal moments I think in my life that really made me, um, want to give back was a trip. One of my first, the trip, my first trip to Peru, another Peru story. Um, I was uh, in Chicamo with the Kolu Kalama and uh, the starboard team. We were riding, um, doing a starboard photo shoot at one of the world's longest waves. Yeah. And uh, we were surfing and paddling every day. And, you know, there's some deserted towns. Oh, yeah. There. No, like, I've been to Chicama. Yeah. There's Lobitos, too, around there, which is beautiful. Longest wave in the world. <laughs> totally. Amazing place. Yeah. Amazing culture, amazing people. Um, and my parents have always taught me that where I go on these trips to not take it for granted, meet the people, make friends, taste the food, experience the culture, put yourself in the, in the, the shoes of the people. And, um, that trip, I was probably 14, 15. Yeah. And I remember I had this big bag of coloring books and crayons and clothes from my clothing sponsor alpine stars at the time and and all this gear that i wanted to leave behind in the town um after the clinic that i taught because even at 12 years old every event that i went on i would organize kids in the community and and to get them on the water whether it's swimming paddling windsurfing or surfing and i planned to do the same thing there and i remember walking through the town and on my left, there's these beautiful waves peeling across, huge beach. Um, the water might have been a little chocolatey, the beach might have been a little dirty, but hey, there's sand dunes all around. It's, of course it's gonna be a little dirty. And then on my right and in front of me, I'm just walking through this somewhat of a ghetto. It's a community though, for, you know, for them, it's just their normal community. And um, mind you, this is a third world country. And I remember seeing a, a young kid um, on the ground, and he was just watching a few kids on the right in in the city, in the town, in the heart, like kind of more in the dense dense town. And he was watching a few kids playing soccer with like a, I think it was like a popped football, or and they're all barefoot. And this kid, I remember, now I'm 13 at this time, 14, like. And I remember, I remember this, this moment so vividly, um, just looking at this kid and not seeing any hope in, in his eyes or, and, um, feeling a true sense of compassion, you know, for like, here I am, same age as this kid traveling the world, 
freaking living a life and not even realizing it fully at the time until right then and there. And that's the moment that I really felt like a little piece of shit. You know, like, who the, who the hell are you to be able to have this, this opportunity, this family that set you up and these people around you to inspire you and, and this opportunity to have sponsors on a budget, you know, going to all these amazing exotic places. And I think that moment was really uh, a turning point for me to be compassionate about kids my age yeah and and younger kids too yeah there's something um to be said about uh the moments when you realize how much it was by chance that you were born Mm -hmm. in the part of the world that you were born and i've had those moments too i think that that's what's been most formative for me is traveling at a young age and understanding how much it was by chance mm. that I was born here mm. and they were born there. Totally. Uh, and that goes goes back to what you were talking about, about grief and really understanding that sadness and that unfairness mm-hmm. that um, the world has. But then to be able to move past that and not dwell on the grief to um, be able to be, go out in the world and become the best version of yourself. Yeah. Right. So had those moments and then you went out and kicked some ass for a few years. Yeah, I mean, but not to, to continue on from that story yeah. though, with the, the punchline of it all is that these kids, you know, are playing in the street. And that one kid in particular that I, I was talking about who just looked like my age with no clothes on his back, no, no shoes, and just no drive to wanna play with those kids. You know, you're just seeing just nothing. And I remember thinking like, geez, like I said, just feel like a piece of shit. And how can I play my role in this and feel good about it? Because I want to keep doing what I'm doing, but how am I going to feel that what I'm doing is Pono, is, is right? And and I've, I've uh, before then I was always, I was putting on clinics because it was what my family did. It was all I knew, teach, share, and this event, I plan to do the same. But what I did differently this time was talk to the kids on a different level of not just sharing a sport, but helped wanting to inspire them. And we played soccer on the beach after this clinic. And I gave away all my boards, all my clothes, all the crayons and coloring books. And not one day before this moment was their kids playing on the beach. Not one day before this moment were their kids even looking at like that that beach and that sand and that water could be a playground. After the day that that we got these kids in the water surfing and and paddling and and playing soccer games on the beach and we did a beach cleanup in the area and you know threw away all the trash in the appropriate place, which was a landfill that they were setting on fire. And it was every day after that, kids were playing on the beach, playing soccer on the beach, playing in the shore break, you know, and seeing the opportunity, seeing that they have a choice, whether it's play in the street or play on the beach. That's still a choice. It's still a privilege. Yep. And this was like, I felt so rewarded to feel that I was able to share 
with these kids, um, I guess what brings so much joy to my life, and and that's yeah my church, my my refuge, yeah. my playground, and to be able to have a conversation with them. Too. Yeah, that's that's the shit because a lot of times I think on travels we. Um, it's easy to give things to people totally. who, are, who aren't as fortunate. Totally. Right? But to take the time to really look someone in the eye and, and have a conversation like, what's up? What's your name? What do you like to do? What do you want to do? And listen and more listen. than talk. Yeah, rather than be like, oh, yes, you poor child. Let me tell you exactly what's right and what's wrong. A lot of times we have these assumptions, mm-hmm. right? We think in our mind that we know these people. Right. It's amazing how much these kids can teach you. Oh, 100%. If you just ask and listen. Yep. And like I learned so much that trip and um, it was it was that was a very pivotal moment for me um, to be able to see my my privileges. Yeah. And and I guess make a decision on how I could give back. Yeah. And um, even before that, I mean, we were teaching clinics and stuff, but it was just different. Now I felt the true reason why before I was just doing it because my family did it because it was culture. And that's a funny thing about culture, you know. Um, we we heard this from uh, Emily Penn. You know, culture comes from two derivatives, culture. And you know, if you look up the the, the definitions of you know, whatever it was, Latin or Greek or whatever the hell, you know, it's it's a cult that you continue. Right. <laughs> it's like so. It's these practices that people think nowadays should stay the same. And here's a really funny example, you know, the Emily was saying there's this family that she was staying with in, in Tonga or Samoa and, and every night they'd make this pot stew and, and they'd cut the end of this pot stew and throw the end off. And and he asked, Why would you throw away that piece of, of good meat? And they're like, Well, it's it's my culture. My grandmother did it, her grandmother did it, and it's what I'm gonna do. And so she tracked down the grandmother, Hey, why do you do that? Well, my grandmother did it, and that's what I'm going to do, and it's what I taught my daughter to do. It's the culture. Well, track down the great-grandmother. Why did you do that? Well, my pot wasn't big enough, so I had to cut the end <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and I think that could relate so much to a lot of practices that we feel we need to continue. Right. And my, I myself am so proud to be be Hawaiian and carry on these these practices, these cultural practices. And they are the most the most efficient, sustainable way of lifestyle, these practices. But there are pieces of culture from around the world that need ap- the adaptation, that need to evolve. And I think we need to see the importance of, of not being scared to evolve, to change. Yeah. And um, it's that's one of the biggest things. Are, that's actually the biggest emotion we all feel as living beings is fear. You know, fight or flight. Um, uh, this this uh, this feeling of of uh, what do you mean by that? Well, dinosaurs. And this is another thing I learned from the Paleocean School. I'm just sharing. Um, dinosaurs had a very small brain, um, size of a grape, and this piece of the brain we all have, all living species have, but this was the only thing they had. And it was the fight or flight part of the brain. Pretty much all they knew was fear. All they knew was to be scared. If I don't eat, I'm gonna die. If I don't run, I'm gonna die. If I don't if I don't do this, yeah. not gonna live. Yeah, it's predator it's, and prey it's, dynamics. It's, it's just fear. All day long, yeah. Now, 
if you relate that to any one of our lives, that sensation, that feeling of fear can be translated to so many things. Fear of not being successful because your parents told you, you need to go to school, you need to get your degree, you need, this is where you need to be. So people might make sacrifices throughout their life because the fear of not living up to the standard or right. the fear of not being successful, whatever that might be, or the fear of, you know, in, in my case, not being able to live up to that, that competitive standard that people know me as right now. I'm in a point in my life where I'm, I'm, I'm excited to take this new chapter, this new change. Yet there's still people in my community that are looking at me like, what are you doing? Like you leaving this, the, the, the racing thing, you're the best at what you do. You need to continue doing this. And I know that I'm not going to be, I'm not going to give in to the fear of not appealing to everyone. I know that I could think of love and what I, how I want to feel, how I want to express myself. And I feel like right now is the time in my life to move away from a little bit from that and to open up more time in my schedule, more freedom in my schedule to further follow what I believe and share what I believe in. So you told me at breakfast that you, at a certain point, were traveling 10 months out of the year to every competition that you could get your hands on. And every event I could do, I would do it. Would you say that that was, um, that motivation was driven out of fear of not living up to expectations on you? Um, I think at that time, I was really just, I think I've always been somewhat of a optimist and enthusiast. And um, I think I just didn't want to miss the opportunity at hand. Like right. I had the chance to go to this place and someone else is going to pay for it. And I could put another spot on my map and meet those people. And yeah. hell, I might not have this chance in 10 years. Yeah. And so I think that was the biggest motivation was like, it's in front of me. I'm going to take it. I'm not just going to take advantage of it. I'm going to take full advantage Squeeze of it. that lemon. I'm gonna, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to make damn sure that the people I come across, I'm going to represent my family. I'm going to yeah. represent what I believe in. And I'm going to, I'm going to leave behind that a little Aloha spirit. Right. And I hope that it could, it could make someone feel something. But you were saying that something shifted for you where you did have that fear of some kind. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. but but you said that something shifted for you where you can relax around your goals a little bit more totally. now. And so t- so take me so into what, a, take me into a before when you were just a, traveling nonstop. So and I like, think t- take, this me, fear take, take, take me into your mindset. I think it's more subconscious. Maybe okay. this yeah. this this what you're talking about for the fear of maybe getting results. And my father's an 18-time world champion. And I've always looked up to my dad. And I think as a kid, I always told myself that I'm going to make him proud. That I'm going to also follow these footsteps. And so, yes, I've wanted to get more than 14 world titles. <laughs> you know, I want to be my right. dad. I want to I ma- let him know that you've taught me this and I'm carrying on that torch. And, and I'm not just carrying it on, but I'm going to leave where you left off. And, um, and so it was a huge motivation in my life, um, to get success in results, 
But then I had this shift that you're talking about that I was sharing with you over breakfast where I realized that these are just stepping stones and that f- the greater picture of things, whatever the enlightenment was that I decided that greater picture is, that these results are just stepping stones. But without them, without this stepping stone, then I'm not going to get there. So especially after 2016, last year, I I had the year of my career. Um, I won my first ISA world championship, overall world championship title. Um, and I got my 14th individual world title um, with uh, in, in Tahiti and in, in Fiji and also some, some big results on the racing scene. And I kind of had this uh, shift where I was like, okay, I think this is the time where I could maybe start to control my life a little more. I have, I've built, I've created the credibility and I've, I've somewhat um, touched my demographic for the most part and the people in it in stand up paddle and windsurf. And now it's time for me to inspire and, and enlighten and, and touch another group of people. Right. And, and so I decided um, that I was going to take a small step back from the stand-up world series, the, the APP Racing League. And because I, I laid it all out and I, and I said, what am I doing now? What do I want to change? What's consuming the most of my time? And what's following my heart out of all this? And stand-up paddle racing, out of all this, it just wasn't weighing out evenly. You know, I it's it wasn't 100% what I wanted to do. It, it's always been the work side of it. Stand-up paddling became the fastest growing water sport. And it's, it's something that I felt that racing was a key part of, of that. I couldn't just win the surf events. So then I'd be leaving out a whole demographic of the stand-up paddle world. I had to do everything. The river races, the, the stand-up paddle races, the channel crossings, the surf events, the technical course races, the Olympic qualifiers, the all this stuff to, to really reach the full potential that I could impact. And so I got the titles in the racing and the surfing and, and these big endurance long events. And now I feel like there's there's a chance for me to um, inspire further. Right. And, um, and so, so here's a question for you. So you made this big shift in your life, right? You had this self-reflective moment or series of moments that allowed you to make decisions in your life that changed. I think that one of the hardest things for people to do is not only have the reflection, but then make the decision. Mm -hmm. And you were telling me before that, um, in these years when you're traveling 10 months out of the year, the only thing that stayed consistent in your life was journaling. Mm -hmm. Did that play a big part in you being able to clarify your thoughts enough to make decisions that translated that to have the self-reflection that translated into decisions? I tell you what, I'd be a lot more scared for the decisions I'm making without that consistency in my life. Um, Journaling, I owe so much of my success and the position I'm in and the uh, the way I hold myself up day to day 
to journaling. Um, I've been journaling for over a decade, and my first trip around the world, my first tour around the world when I was 12 years old, 11 years old, my grandmother gave me a journal. And it, it, it's on the, on the top, it said devotion. And every day there was a different quote on the bottom. And, and I would write down the different languages that I'm learning from the area. I'd, I used it as my little language book for communication. I, I wrote down the, the, the people I met and how they made me feel and, and the, the, explain the environment and the competition, the obstacles I overcome to get the result I wanted or not. And any day I could open that journal despite my eight concussions and my terrible memory, and I could start reading and I could t be taken back to that environment, the feelings I felt when I was dropping it on the pages and be almost like a full time capsule, you know? But there was a different type of, um, I guess, consistency that, that came about for, for me. And that was, I guess, um, with a, a daily, you know, the time, the day I decided to write daily, you know, and, and every day, no matter what, super short, super simple. And I think that really did what, that was a pivotal moment as well in my life to every day list. And my grandma taught me this. I've just never wrote it down. You know, every day my grandma would tell me before you go to sleep, you say seven things you're grateful for. Cause gratitude is, is the, is the, what it's the will attitude. make you happy? Yep. You know, gratitude is where happiness comes from. Yeah. Every day I would recite seven things I'm grateful for. She made this crystal beads that she calls the gratitude beads. And I would travel with these everywhere I go and I'd hold these beads in my hand that had my favorite colors and my favorite number of different stones. And and I would recite these these things I'm grateful for. Would it be a new seven things every day? It, has, it never could be the same thing. Never. And so if you think about that, someone who doesn't practice gratitude, where seven things that you could be grateful never could be the same thing. Wow. Never. So what's an example? So for example, I mean, I actually brought my journal here today. I could, I could show you, but my, today, this morning I, I woke up and I wrote down in my book, I'm grateful for oxygen because I just finished doing yoga and, and I, and I realized you know, after practicing yoga and meditation that, you know, I could do a hundred push-ups in one go as opposed to 70 after doing, after oxygenating my blood and oxygenating my body. And so I was like this morning, I wrote, I'm grateful for oxygen. And then I wrote, I'm grateful for being in this time. I mean, being in this place at this time, despite it not being in my plans because I was meant to be in Hawaii right now. And I decided to extend my layover in between trips and come back down to Santa Cruz and, you know, be a part of the paddle fest, which I did five, six years ago. And, um, and you know, the, what do you, do you journal in the mornings? Is it a morning night thing? Night and morning. Night and morning. Night and morning. Okay. And morning time, um, I, I, I'll do gratitude and some goal setting and affirmation. And then at nighttime, I'll, I'll do uh, three things that was amazing today and what uh, I could have done to make the day better. And yep. um, you and I both practice this style of, of journaling. We were inspired by um, Tim Ferriss. And it was, uh, it's called the five minute journal. 
and um this has been um i feel like a really big moment for me to keep my my um my aspirations and my goals um in synergy with my heart and my mind right and it it allows you to um measure what a good day is Mm -hmm. right because if you can write down these are three things that would make the day great Mm -hmm. right and then you can check those off hell yeah today was a great day Mm -hmm. right and they feed into a larger goal whether that's to be a world champion or do some grandiose thing that many times can feel unattainable but to make it feel more attainable by writing down one decision after the next decision after the next decision especially if you're living a life with without routine Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who i sit down with on this podcast are um travelers all year long they don't know where they're going to be in the next three days their life their schedule are dependent on waves and weather and the only thing that they can have consistently in their life is something as simple as a journal Mm -hmm. and i do think that it has profound impacts on um happiness as well total subconscious impacts and, too and i think that a lot of times we wait for those peak moments in life to reflect which is a mistake mm. because um you know you could have easily said i'm going to journal after i win this race and then you sit down and yeah. you reflect on that great peak moment in life but what happens is then you're constantly waiting for expecting you're you're expecting and you're waiting for peak moments to occur um which don't by the nature of peak moments they just don't happen all that often which is what makes them special but to be able to be grateful for the quote unquote mundane Mm -hmm. to be grateful for that day that you had to get some work done and you saw a friend and sat down for coffee and had a good conversation and to make those moments special um allow you to build that muscle so that when the peak moments occur you're more well versed Mm -hmm. in reflecting and enjoying the moment and um ultimately having a little bit more control over your mind totally i mean uh, and there's a number of practices that that i think maybe i practice to to work this area of my mind and journaling is is for sure one of them um, but meditation in the form of everybody thinks meditation. Oh, you sit down and, and, and cross your legs for 60 minutes a day. I, pff, you're crazy. You know, <laughs> no, I meditate as much as I can. Hell, I could be meditating right now. You know, when we're going into deep conversation and I'm feeling connected with, with the energy that we're sharing, that's meditation, you know, to be able to be on the water and, and be paddling and clear your head and feel a moment of clarity and be truly present in that moment. That's meditation. Right. You know, to be able to uh, really feel meditation through, I guess, your day-to-day practices is totally accomplishable. And one of the biggest things that I like to practice, another type of meditation, is what I learned from... um, a girl I met in Dominican Republic um, and she does something called mindful tapping and um, I was actually with Ronnie Renner and professional motocross racer and a group of other athletes out there for the master of the ocean and this this big film project for the new triple X and um, and anyway it was the practice is you know kind of taught me that the hardest thing in life about 
about you know accomplishing these goals or starting a job is that first action that first step that you take of commitment that first decision like okay i'm doing it yeah 90 percent of the of the work is just showing up totally i mean everyone everyone can can sit down and think about what they want to do and 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 how they're going to get there and what it's going to be like to accomplish it but to really start that job and get the ball rolling is sometimes the hardest part. And so meditation, this form of meditation, mindful tapping, it like eliminates that first that first step. And and the way it is is like if a series of acupuncture points where you tap your your body in a sequence of of areas while thinking about starting off how you feel in this present moment, how you'd like to feel. To, to make your day better. And then you start to think about the things you'd like to accomplish, whether it's that day or in the future. And then you start to, and you're tapping all these different trigger points on your body as you, as you meditate on this. And, and then you go through and break down the steps that you're going to take to get to that goal. And then you don't stop there. You go on about really visualizing, feeling what it's like when you accomplish that goal. You you scream and holler or whatever it is, cry or, or jump and dance like you actually already accomplished that goal. And and like I can't tell you the the impact it makes because it when you finished with this, you already feel like you got that like you started a job. Right. It's right. like that for those first few steps are gone. It's like I'm already going. You know, you already well, know clearly what you have to do and how you're going to feel to accomplish it. Well, think about it in the opposite, right? If you're uh, worried and anxious about something that's going to happen in the future, your body is chemically changing. Your cortisol levels are shooting up. So your thoughts are impacting your uh, your biology, right? And if you're having these positive affirmation thoughts and you're Im- embodying that feeling the cells of your body are feeling that too mm-hmm. right so your do- your dopamine levels are are going up right you're relaxing so tell me um i want to share the name of this lady yeah yeah share the uh, name out of it. respect out of mana'o um in hawaiian culture we have some mana'o and it's not just a word it, directly translated it could mean knowledge but out of respect of where this knowledge came from, I'd like to share the, the, the lady that, that shared this with me, and her name is Esma. And um, you could check her out um, online if you search Mindful Tapping at Esma. And, um, she, she shared that, that mana'o with me. And um, mana'o, like I said, is not just knowledge. It's, it's acknowledging and respecting where that knowledge came from and how far it's traveled to get to you. And a perfect example of that in Hawaiian culture is, is um, say, the livelihood. I'm the worst at this. I just take quotes left and right because <laughs> people on my podcasts and then I... <laughs> hey, but you're sharing, you're carrying on the torch, man. I just can never remember who told me something. <laughs> like, I, I heard it somewhere. I remember the quote. Yeah. And I don't yeah, know who yeah. told it to me. <laughs> So uh, none of my thoughts are original. I just stand on the shoulders of others and call myself tall. Hey, but that's but that's a power that you're that you're blessed to have because not many people could even take these things and plant it in their head, you know. And so this this practice, ano ano, to, to plant the seed in your head or plant and 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 let it grow, is um, mana'o is a really huge part of it. So for my mana'o, 
my success is I, I owe completely to the manao that's been shared with me from my father, from my brother, from his friends, from the people coming in and out of my house, the people that's been surrounding me. And a good example of that is you say if a fisherman, you know, he's he's lived his life providing for his family. He knows the currents, the tides, the reef, where to get what to put food on the table. He didn't just all of a sudden acquire this. It's been something he's worked his lifetime to adapt and is probably something that's been passed on from his father. Now, he's not he's doing this to keep his family alive if he has a son or a daughter you know he's not going to just continue doing what he's doing he's going to make damn sure that they also can carry on this torch that they know where to what to do and where to get to provide for their family to not just survive but thrive and so that to me is a great sense of understanding mana'o where it's it's an honor to share, but it's also an honor to take on and a responsibility to take on, a responsibility to acknowledge the where that manahu has traveled and, and who it's gone through. And it's almost like a piece of spirit that's instilled upon you. Yeah. And I think subconsciously you know where you've learned, you know, these these pivotal moments. And um it's 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 a cool practice. So anyway, it is a cool practice. So Esma, thank you. All right. All right. <laughs> so you're um, in a place right now where you're writing about a lot of this for a book. Yes. Um, Tell me about that. So another just kind of heho ilona paha moment, a moment that's meant to be. A lady that I've been teaching for a few years now. Um, she kind of just planted the seed in my head. Like you got to write a book. And uh, I've been teaching her paddling for a few years. And last year, she was in Maui with her her husband. And this is uh, Judy Shasik. She runs a podcast as well called Paddle to Presence. Um, and uh, I did a podcast with her after this session we had. And, and at the end of the session, she's like, Zane, man, you have an amazing philosophy. And you've had so many obstacles to overcome at such a young age and your outlook on life is is focused upon innovating and inspiring and that's that's a powerful message and and she kind of walked me through what it would take to to write a book she also is, is a publisher and for me it was so easy because i already had my book i have i have four journals filled with amazing experiences stories connections obstacles you know peak uh, emotional moments in my life it's all there already you know and and so now I've just been the last eight months converting these journals these magazine write-ups these stories these event recaps my blogs putting them all together into something that could flow and I did this at first um, I guess for my own comfort of the fear of forgetting these amazing moments. Because like I said before briefly, I've, I've had over eight major concussions and, and my memory day to day is, is not, not phenomenal. I mean, I'm a great student. I'm always learning and I'm always trying to strive for excellence. But if you put me on the spot with, hey, what do you have for breakfast yesterday? Or, hey, what's the name of that guy? Or blah, blah, blah. It's, a, it's hard. I truly do day to day rely on instinctual wow. memory you're like the guy from memento that movie? <laughs> i haven't watched it he is uh um short-term memory loss or 
yeah, it's short-term memory loss. So he gets tattoos oh. of experiences, <laughs> and he's trying to solve a murder. Oh, classic! And he can only do it because um, he has these tattoos. Ooh, I got to check himself. this out. Oh, it's a good one. It's a classic. But yeah, so I, I first did did this continued this this writing just because it it personally I wanted to be able to remember these amazing experiences and these stories and these feelings and you know I do truly believe that I've had the the luxury the pleasure that the blessing to live many lives already at, at 23 years old and once again it comes back to why do I deserve this what am I here for and it turned into something that was just for me to kind of remember these things and maybe pass on to my kids so they could see what I've done and be inspired to now it's evolving into something way greater than what I, what I imagined. And I mean, like I didn't realize I was a, a writer, you know, I didn't realize I was an artist. I didn't know that I was, I guess, good at this. It was just something I did. And, um, now it's it's evolved into this book, um, I could say an autobiography style of journaling that focuses on um, my mission in life, which is innovate and inspire. And that's kind of the theme of the book, along with learn from your past, live in your present, and manifest your future. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be the title of the book. Um, I love it, man. But it's it talks a lot about what I've done, my experiences, my, my obstacles, and how I've been able to keep my goals in, in my heart and in my head and keep them in sync, and how I've been able to take a step, been motivated to continue taking a step towards them every day, and the importance of being relentless in your dreams. And I'd like to say it's almost coming into like a character and performance development book more than autobiography style of journaling. Yeah. No, you, you're uh, good at being not only inspiring, but also pragmatic with um, the advice that you can give to people and hopefully they can um, get use of it um, rather than just having this big grandiose, oh yeah, that's cool, he's an inspiring guy, but telling people to journal, which is really helpful. Let's end it on that note, man. <laughs> that was awesome. I really enjoyed sitting down with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Kyle. I mean, um, maybe before we before we get off, I want to say a huge thanks to, um, to Michael Stewart, Sustainable Surf, and Greg Long for planting the seed. Um, in my life to for you to come come in into my life, man. I mean, just two days ago, I listened to the first podcast from from you, and it was because I was in Maldives with Greg. And Greg, we were talking life, talking books. Greg's also working on a book, and we were talking about where we get our inspiration from. And I, I was, we were then started talking about podcasts, and I was saying, oh, Tim Ferriss, one of my favorite. And he said, dude, you gotta check out Kyle Tierman. And so I subscribed to yours, and I watched one episode, and I'm not even, I'm not even joking. Like an hour later, you called me, like. Hey, Michael Stewart told me about you and you're in town. You want to come record? And I was like, that's, that's just way too good. Because yeah, yeah it's along the life. It's a, the universe wants it to happen. So, um, well, let's do more of it. Once, you're, once your book's out, I'll have you on again. Heck yeah. Can't wait. Right on. Thanks, Zane. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you want to get in touch with Zane, hit him up on Instagram. His handle is Zanic one Z-A-N. I-A-C-1. Go say hello. And if you want to get in touch with me, Instagram's also a good spot, or head over to my website, kyle.surf. Give me feedback on the podcast. Let me know who you want me to have on next. 
any and all things. I love hearing from you. And if you're feeling particularly giving, if you're feeling warm and fuzzy inside, please take one minute and give this show a rating on iTunes. I'll tell you how you do it. If you're on my show right now, you're going to go to the search button. You're going to retype in The Kyle Tierman Show. I know it's weird, but it's going to take you to a new page where there's details, reviews related. Click reviews, give it a few stars, and it helps other people find the show. All right, get out there, get in the water, give someone a high five. I've got some amazing podcasts coming out in the days and weeks ahead. I've been sitting on them, and I've been waiting for the perfect time. So stay tuned, and I'll see you soon.